0: All right, Dave. Here we go.
1: Shots fired.
0: That's fired, yeah.
1: Uh, we're going to start with the Western Front because things happened there very quickly. And this is the uh, the Schlieffen plan in action. So just a little background on how this war is different right from the start. The armies involved were huge right from the outset. Uh, Developments in agriculture and industry meant that countries could feed, arm, and equip immense numbers of men. And railways allowed these men to move to the borders quickly, and then those railways could keep them supplied. Uh, Weapons now include uh, rifles with magazines. These are no longer single-shot rifles. Uh, Machine guns. And the artillery is different. These are breech-loading, rapid-firing artillery. Uh, Breach-loading simply means that instead of putting the cannon ball or the shell into the muzzle of the gun and then ramming it down, it's like a a rifle now where the cannon opens at the breech, you slide a shell in, close the breech, and fire. So rapid-firing artillery.
0: Which is uh, what we still have today. We, we haven't gotten somehow beyond that. That's that's the state of artillery today, too, right?
1: Yeah, except we've added some new components to the shells. Uh, yeah, computer guidance and
0: laser guidance. And,
1: well, I was also thinking uh, depleted yeah. uranium and okay. phosphorus and all Buster sorts bumps. of things to make them even deadlier. Although World War One's going to experiment with that as well very soon. So after all of this modern technology, though, the armies are still moving at the speed of horses and mules. So where you don't have railways or where the railways have been destroyed, the armies are going to be slow.
0: But you can't bomb railways yet, right? You can tear them up. You can tear them up on the ground. You have to be you have to control them on the ground first. Yeah. Or, Or saboteurs, I guess. But I think that the the, the uh, heaviness of the shell fire is oh, going yeah. to
1: surprise how much damage you can do. Right. Uh, the generals, of course, have not kept pace. Uh, as in most wars, they're perfectly ready to fight the last right. war or, or their favorite war. So they're still thinking in Napoleonic terms. They ignore or maybe they just recoil from the ugly lessons of the American Civil War. Uh, they've cherry picked a few lessons from 1870, when war was quick, and then they ignore uh, 1904, the Russo-Japanese War, and they ignore the Balkan Wars of
0: 1912 and 13. Um, why? <laughs> it's a big, it's a big shift in thinking, right? I mean, I, I, I read. A- sorry i just muted myself i read a book i I think i've mentioned it on this podcast before where um it's some american military thinker and he's basically saying napoleon napoleonic wars were the last ones where concentrating a huge amount of men into one spot was the winning uh method right as soon as you change the equation of where firepower, you know, you have machine guns, um, then concentrating men is just concentrating casualties. So you have to start to spread your men out. Which means, how do you, how do you then get a decisive advantage over the enemy if you have to spread them out? And so there's a whole different way of thinking about the whole problem that I guess has taken a long time to to sort out.
1: Right. And that's the amazing part is how long it takes.
0: Have uh, we sorted you, it out now? <laughs> I mean it's not, you know, it's not entirely clear that we have sorted it out even now. No, you, no you're right.
1: You're right. Providing targets to your enemies is not all that yeah. wise and yet they keep stubbornly doing it.
0: Because to get to destroy your enemy you do have to have bigger numbers and more firepower but how do you concentrate that without getting smoked it's a problem yeah yeah
1: so here's just a, a couple of notes on the uh, different armies and and their theories of how the war is going to go or how they're going to approach it so in germany all physically fit men belong to the army i mean this tradition goes back to <laughs> the great elector and frederick the great so for hundreds of years Prussia and its attitude have you know, basically dominated in Germany. So every man in Germany is called up annually. Age 17 to 20, you belong to the Landsturm uh, first class. Now, in fact, the army can only handle about half of the men. So the rest go into what was called the Ersatz Reserve, and they got limited training. So half of your young men are getting, I guess, what you would call uh, basic training, and the other half are getting uh, familiarization. I I don't know what to call it. I don't know how limited the training was. I just know that the Army couldn't, in fact, train everybody, so you have reserves. At age 20, if physically fit, these young men joined the Army for two years compulsory service. If you chose cavalry or horse artillery as your branch of the army, you do three years. And after that, you go into the reserves for five years. So you can tell right away they have an immense mass of trained and partially
0: trained men ready to call up. And this is the best system, right? There's nobody else that's as good as this in terms of... I
1: I would say thorough and efficient. I don't know if it's best to militarize your society to this
0: degree. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's another debate, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So from age 27 to 39, having done your military service, you are now a member of the Landwehr, uh, which is like another class of reserve. Uh, From 39 to 45 years of age, you are part of the Landsturm second class so they've got all these different gradations of reserve and we'll call them up in order of need and in this case the need is great they're going to be calling them all up and the germans are doing something that the other armies are not they have an active army uh, of 25 army corps each corps has two divisions they have 11 cavalry divisions as well but they have 32 reserve divisions seven ersatz divisions, and roughly 16 landwehr divisions. And here's the big difference. Schlieffen planned to use the reserve and ersatz divisions right away in the opening battles. When Germany mobilizes, they call up all of these reserves. And it's going to give them a huge numerical advantage, at least in the
0: West. Core... uh Wow, so a core, can we just uh, I, i'm I'm constantly having to do this. I know actual military people know this by heart, but
1: uh, no the the uh the size of divisions differs from army to army, and then the division
0: s- is a few thousand several thousand active fighting men
1: yeah on on paper, it should be somewhere around ten thousand right. in reality it's somewhere around 7 or 8 right and then a corps is tens of thousands of men yeah two two divisions together with a general in command of 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 both and then and then you can have multiple armies yeah so the germans have organized their troops into eight armies seven of these armies are aimed at france one is going to defend east prussia from a a Russian attack. That's the Schlieffen plan. Schlieffen's dead. And now uh, Moltke, Moltke the Younger, is in command, and he's been tinkering with the plan for the last number of years. I'll I'll get to that tinkering in in a little bit. So by contrast, the French society, rather than being militarized, the French are politicized, this goes back to the French Revolution, but if you remember uh, how divided they were over the Dreyfus Affair, that debate isn't, isn't finished. They are constantly arguing over the composition of the army, meaning who should be in it. How long should your service be? Uh, for a long time, they had two years compulsory military service. Until 1913, they decided they needed three years. And after eighteen seventy they started fortifying the border it it's all they they know there's a future war against Germany coming, and we've got to start getting ready now so from uh Belfort to Verdun, the border is is fortified. French troops are organized in five armies they have twenty one corps uh, then they have two colonial Corps, and three independent divisions. I don't know why they have three independent divisions, but they do. Uh, Ten cavalry and 25 reserve divisions. And then there's their border with Belgium, which they have not fortified because they don't want to alarm the Belgians and drive them into Germany's arms. And that area is defended or patrolled by three cavalry divisions. Now, logic would suggest that the French plan would be you know, to do like Muhammad Ali did and, and rope-a-dope. Just go on the defensive until the Russians arrive. Right. That's the and lesson of of 1870. You don't so want to go toe-to-toe with Germany.
0: Don't lose and then in the first Germany, round. And then Germany will be in a two-front war as long as you don't lose early.
1: Yeah, given the distance... And the speed of mobilization, you're basically you're in a, a boxing ring with Germany, and Russia's in the dressing room. So you got to yeah. hang on until the Russians can get to the ring, yeah. and then you'll have, you know, Germany fighting in in two directions. However, the French have indulged themselves in some historical revisionism. Yes, we lost in 1870, but we lost because of a lack of offensive spirit. Like we we weren't ourselves now add a little bit of Napoleonic nostalgia and this turns into a a belief in the French officer corps that this faith that is almost mystical that the attack will always succeed. If you press home the attack with the bayonet. It's going to depend on willpower. (laughs) <laughs> or what the or what the French start calling élan, elan e l a n or offensive à outrance yes and that simply means all the way offensive to the end and elan is is a bit like dash right we're going to have spirit we're going to have style and you know as long as we push the attack all the way so to help the troops morale, since you're going to be telling them to charge with bayonets.
0: <laughs> Can I give you a little bit of um, Tuckman here? I've been reading oh yeah, Barbara yeah. Uh France knew herself to be physically weaker than Germany. Her population was less, her birth rate lower. She needed some weapon that Germany lacked to give herself confidence in her survival. The idea with a sword fulfilled the need. Expressed by Bergson, it was called élan vital, the all-conquering will. Belief in its power convinced France that the human spirit need not, after all, bow to the predestined forces of evolution. The spirit of France would be the equalizing factor. Her will to win her élan would enable France to defeat her enemy. Okay, it's got a deeper philosophical background than I thought. (laughs) It sounds a lot of... Blah 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 to me. <laughs> well, right,
1: and it and it led to some really bad decisions. For example, to to uh, encourage the troops, the army went back to the older uniforms:
0: long blue coats and red trousers. Oh, sorry. There, so there's a teacher, uh, Folk, Folk, Folk? Foch. Foch, Foch, Marshal so, Foch. Foch, Marshal Foch. Foch, F-O-C-H, yeah. So Foch is one of these advocates of um, Elon, Mm -hmm. and he says, um, so once in 1908, when Clemenceau was considering Foch, then a professor for the post of director of the War College, a private agent whom he sent to listen to the lectures reported back in bewilderment, this officer teaches metaphysics so abstruse as to make idiots of his pupils. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah yeah uh but but it worked on the officers they they pretty much all believe in this, yeah, and that's yeah that's bad for the men and of course, these tactics had failed a hundred years earlier, and you're gonna try them again oh. on the brighter side, the French had uh large numbers of an excellent uh field gun. this is the seventy five millimeter uh cannon. Rapid firing, breech loading, it could fire 20 rounds a minute and it was deadly. Uh, the Germans are going to learn to fear this particular gun. However, machine guns were neglected. Uh, officers were taught to rely on forcefulness and tenacity rather than tactical skill. The general in command is going to be General Joffre. He's 62 years old, a former engineer who had served in the colonies he had no strong ideas on strategy or tactics his main quality seems to have been that he was imperturbable in a crisis uh, so he didn't panic
0: not necessarily good uh well better panic <laughs> better than losing your
1: nerve uh, yeah but it does indicate some future (laughs) issues the French army is going to have. Joffre, his reputation was based on that. His war plans are going to contribute to the disaster that was rapidly approaching. I'll come back to their plan in a moment. Uh, The Belgian army consisted of six infantry divisions, uh, 117,000 men, uh, Including the garrisons of three three key fortresses, Antwerp, Liege, and Namur, they had two divisions facing France, one division facing Germany, and then they had troops at Antwerp in the in the fortress garrison, and the rest of their troops were in reserve. Uh, their army had been neglected uh, underpaid, and underfunded. It was an unpopular duty; they had limited training. And their fortresses, unfortunately, were obsolete. And guess, you found a detail about this that I didn't even know.
0: Yeah. So their staff colleges also follow Elon, so they're not doing yeah. a lot of great. They're not great planners, like you said. It's not a good career. But also, um, we talked a lot about military modernization, and Belgium uh, was ready. You, in the in the previous episode, we talked. You talked a lot about the ultimatum. uh yes. Dave. That germany gave to belgium right and uh and belgium was in this impossible dilemma do they violate their own neutrality do they uh, allow the germans through and not be destroyed do they fight knowing they're gonna lose so they decide to fight and so there's a In barbara tuchman is extremely detailed <laughs> recounting of these meetings down to the dialogue so There, she's recounting a a dialogue of the Belgian officials talking to one another. Um, You know, so Basson-Pierre says, if we are to be crushed, let us be crushed gloriously. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Uh, Vander Elst uh, breaks the silence of the room and asks Premier de Broqueville, well, sir, are we ready? Uh, Yes, we are ready, de Broqueville answered. Yes, he repeated, as if trying to convince himself, except for one thing, we have not yet got our heavy artillery. Only in the last year had the government obtained increased military appropriations from a reluctant parliament conditioned to neutrality. The order for heavy guns had been given to the German firm of Krupp, which, not surprisingly, <laughs> had delayed deliveries.
1: Oh, dear. It's
0: funny because, yeah, I mean, Tuckman's book talks all about like Belgium and how they tried to make an appeal to the Kaiser directly and King Albert and all this stuff, but like it's funny too because belgium was just so one of the worst like we know germany was one of the worst scramble for africa but belgium was also just as bad in africa and in congo and so much of their wealth that's being destroyed now in this story is stolen from congo (laughs) it's all very it's all very weird to read yeah Tuckman doesn't really get that she doesn't she doesn't really get the colonial aspect of any of this but.
1: i can remember a, a classmate in uh when i was an undergrad uh asking the professor if if they liked Tuckman. she was quite popular then yeah. and the professor's reaction was like somebody had poured vinegar on his on his face he was just <laughs> oh. so she's a popular historian and yeah. what that means is she 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 tries to make it an interesting story. I think it already is, but she tries to add, you know, the personalities, and yeah, she'll yeah. make up a conversation here or there. Uh, she'll she'll give them uh, emotions when they speak, yeah. and you know, you're thinking, were you there? How
0: do you know this? <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. And I I don't think she cites things. She has a, a bibliography, an extensive one. She's done her research. That's for sure. She just doesn't use citations so professional historians you know uh are horrified that people are reading her well yeah that's because your stuff is dry as dust and she makes it fun
0: <laughs>
1: right if they're going to make a movie it'll be out of her book not yours
0: so she's uh, not a prof somewhere i don't think so interesting yeah it doesn't look like doesn't look like she was a prof anywhere. okay well let's continue good writer though yeah, no. I it's re- remember when we were talking about Thomas Packenham. Yes, uh, and because he wrote a book about scramble for Africa, and he's also like as he as he walked towards the office of you know <laughs> Bismarck, he scratched his head and <laughs> sweat formed on his furrowed brow. You're like, what? <laughs> how do <Hi>. you how? <laughs> he was watching the video. Oh wow.
1: Uh okay so the British army very very different uh small uh professional army uh they're going to organize the British expeditionary force this will be six infantry divisions and one cavalry division a total of about 160,000 men now that seems to add up to like m- more than 20,000 in a division but i wonder sometimes if they're counting support troops as well
0: Everybody probably counts differently.
1: Yeah, they do, just to make things more confusing. Uh, So this army is small, but well-trained, especially in marksmanship. They learned a lesson in the Boer War about how deadly uh, firepower could be. Even the British cavalry were issued rifles, which is unusual. Uh, They wore cocky uniforms. They'd given up the red uniforms after the Boer War, realizing they made perfect targets. And this army is composed of volunteers. Behind that, they have the Territorials and the Yeomanry, two distinct reserve groups uh, consisting of about 14 divisions that are neither fully trained nor fully equipped. But there's uh, one guy in... Britain, who has a flash of insight and this is lord kitchener he we've met him before he was the the
0: battle of Um under yes he did in sudan machine guns he used he was pretty good at using machine guns on african
1: um but he remembers it as using artillery on them Ah. which which he also did uh he's now secretary of state for war and and a national figure, his his uh, likeness is instantly recognizable. The big mustaches.
0: He, Sorry. He does- one one other thing though, Dave, before Kitchener, which is Britain also, unlike uh, the other powers, has India, Canada to a lesser extent, and some other massive pools of manpower that they will eventually draw on. And I'm sure, sure. this also factors into their planning. Right. It, it it doesn't it doesn't oh okay you'd be they, you'd be
1: amazed how little they're thinking ahead that's why i am mentioning kitchener because he's the one who has a flash of insight okay. everybody expects the war is going to be over by christmas i see and there are those who think that the war will be over by the harvest yeah and this kind of thinking means we don't have to think ahead and kitchener who was not very good at staff organization and he had many, many failings, but he had uh, a flash of insight at this moment. He said, the war is going to last three or four years and we're going to need an army of millions. And the rest of the cabinet just looked at him horrified. Like they couldn't even begin to wrap their heads around an idea like that. Uh, And they're not going to prepare immediately but you're right they can draw on uh, the troops of the the dominions the the self-governing dominions sort of self-governing in India's case Um, but yes Canada New Zealand Australia South Africa and so on they they will draw on those troops it'll just take some organization and some time so the various plans uh, the Schlieffen plan we've mentioned before It's that massive right wing coming through uh, Belgium to to take the French in the flank and in the rear. But Moltke made some changes. He's worried about East Prussia, that the Russians could break in and the Germans could lose a lot of territory there. So he reinforced that army. He's also afraid that the French could break through in Lorraine and Alsace if they attack. So he strengthened the left wing of the army in the West. And all of this, of course, is at the expense of that powerful right wing. Exactly what Schlieffen said not to do, he does. But by including the reserve divisions, the Germans have a numerical advantage. Their problem is going to be how to supply the right wing as it moves forward. They're they're going to be in trains until they get to the border. After that... It'll be walking and horses and mules and carrying supplies forward. The French have a plan of their own. It's called Plan 17. Uh, putting troops on the, on the Belgian border you know, in peacetime would have looked odd. Uh, the French believe that even if the Germans do violate Belgian neutrality, they couldn't extend their operations that far west.
0: Logistics.
1: Logistics. Right. So Peter Young, uh, historian Peter Young, says Plan Seventeen, based on wishful thinking, made assumptions that were wholly unjustifiable. The French plan seems to be we're going to attack in Lorraine, and hopefully the Germans don't come through Belgium. They probably can't. So yeah.
0: And and there's also. did we talk about this already or are you gonna talk about it later? There there was a whole diplomatic thing they did where they moved everybody ten ten miles back or something from the front to Oh show to avoid co- an incident. To show yeah, to avoid an incident. Which yeah.
1: Yeah. Did. I'm not sure if they went ten miles everywhere, but they certainly pulled some troops back to avoid, you know, the yeah. kind of uh skirmish or, or frontier incident where somebody gets killed and then the other side can use that as a pretext the uh the tactics of the army uh are, of the competing armies were a little different the germans had more training when it came to handling their machine guns and their heavy artillery uh, but they had also forgotten <laughs> at least one of the lessons of 1870 uh, their infantry tended to clump together so you're perfectly right they should spread out but when they're under fire, they tend to want to be closer to other guys for, I don't know, confidence building or. So,
0: sorry, I, I was looking. It's a 10 kilometer withdrawal. Okay. And a big part of it was to um, try to make sure that the English would enter on their side. Um, one, Viviani, <laughs> uh, to assure the collaboration of our english neighbors the act of withdrawal done at the very portals of invasion was a calculated military risk deliberately taken for its political effect it was taken a chance never before taken in history said viviani but and might have added ah here's how tuchman does it might have added like serano de bergerac ah but what a gesture
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay not sure how much i trust her there (laughs) Uh, yeah so on the 5th of august the hostilities began general von kluck's first army i'm not making that up k-l-u-c-k general von kluck who commands the first army the extreme right wing edge of the german offensive he attacked the belgian uh, city of liege the garrison fought back and fought well but As you say, the forts were obsolete. Not only did they lack heavy guns, but they weren't connected by a system of trenches. So the Germans simply penetrated between the forts uh, into the city and captured it. The forts held out, and they had to be reduced by heavy artillery. So the Germans had to bring up huge siege guns, and it took until the 16th of August to basically blow up the forts. However, the German columns had already started marching past uh, these fortresses a couple of days before that. So the French now realize the Germans are coming through Belgium and Luxembourg. uh, And they're remaining on the defensive south of uh, Metz. But they had not picked up the presence of reserve divisions. So they underestimated the German numbers. And Joffre's plan was to take the offensive, imagine. He was going to smash through the center and then turn on the German right wing. So as they advance into Belgium, we're going to smash through their center and get behind them. Uh, The plan (laughs) was decidedly optimistic in the words of one historian I read. And of course, the French are attacking themselves uh, in the south. So from the Swiss border up to uh verdun i guess and the germans initially retreated there that was the plan the further the french push in that area the better for the schlieffen plan right then the big right wing can get behind them but then you have to take into account the personalities of the individual army commanders one of whom is prince ruprecht of bavaria and he doesn't like retreating so he counterattacks. And he drove the French 2nd Army back. The French 1st Army had made some gains, but now they had to retreat with the 2nd Army to avoid exposing their flanks.
0: So these guys are walking up to each other and shooting each other with rifles is basically how the battle goes. uh,
1: And the artillery is involved and the machine guns. But it's they're
0: they're not in uh they're not in trenches yet yeah nobody's dug in yet so it's it's there's some kind of maneuver it's a war of movement for now
1: yeah so the french offensive has failed and it didn't seem to help joffre understand what had gone wrong so on the 21st of august they attacked again the french third and fourth armies crossed the border and ran headlong into two German armies, one of which was commanded by the Kaiser's son, the Crown Prince. And the French were heavily defeated in four different uh, engagements, like separate battles. Casualties were especially heavy among the French officers, uh, many of whom had made it a point of honour to wear white gloves and full-dress uniforms with those big uh, (laughs) plumes, well the big the big uh, hat shakos yeah. uh, because it was their maiden battle so they wanted to look good for their first battle for yeah, many of last them, <laughs> it was their, yeah yeah uh, the french had to retreat to the river meuse and the crown prince pursued energetically the germans it was their turn to take heavy casualties from the french artillery especially those 75 millimeter guns So there's a a situation here where the French are acting according to plan and failing dismally, and the Germans are not acting according to plan and are attacking. You're you're not supposed to be attacking on this side. The attack's on the right. You, You stay put and draw the French in, but they didn't do that. Back in Belgium, the Germans are advancing, but they're getting frustrated by Belgian resistance and the delays which this is causing. So here we get to a situation which I like to call poor little Belgium. Uh the Belgian defense won considerable admiration in other countries. There are journalists present and and none of these countries have imposed censorship yet. They haven't figured it out. So they're <laughs> they're reporting on, you know, the brave Belgian fighters. And how they're resisting the huge German army. So it's very much a David and Goliath situation. And then the Germans went ahead and made things immeasurably worse for themselves. They adopted from the very beginning a policy of intimidation. They were hoping to convince King Albert of Belgium to give in. In order to save his people. So an envoy under flag of truce... Uh, went to threaten that German airships, Zeppelins, would destroy Liège from the air. Oh. And on August 6th, they dropped 13 bombs on the city, killing nine civilians. So they didn't have the means at their disposal to carry out their threats, but just you know the fact that they're making these threats...
0: And they're aerially bombing. So Italians, I think, were the first ones to do this, right, in in Africa? Yeah. And, uh, and now it's already come to Europe. They yep. already brought it to Europe, bombing yep. civilians from the air. Mm-hmm. Three years. Joseph, so, was just the 1911, I think, was the first?
1: Yeah, from so. what I read, it sounded like the
0: first aerial bombardment and Just three three years, took three years to to start doing it in Europe. Yeah. So the Belgian
1: army didn't have much choice but to retreat to the fortress of Antwerp. Uh, But as they retreated, they thoughtfully tore up the railway lines so that the Germans couldn't use them. They blew up bridges and they cut telephone and telegraph wires. General What's the,
0: Is there a gauge thing? I assume everybody in this part of Europe is using the same railway gauges. So the that's Germans right. Could, yeah. The only ones who
1: use uh, different gauges are Spain and Russia. <laughs> Spain, Spain, out of stubbornness, uh, and Russia with a good sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. They figured if yeah. if the Germans want to attack us, they're not going to be able to use our railways because their trains won't fit. So yeah, that was pretty smart. Of course, if they're attacking Germany then same <laughs> same, same thing.
0: But applies. I guess they know I guess they know which way <laughs> which way the attack is likely to go.
1: Oh maybe, eh? Maybe. So General von Kluck in particular was upset by what he called extremely aggressive guerrilla warfare.
0: Extremely aggressive defensive warfare, yeah. Exactly.
1: Well he called them guerrillas. Uh <laughs> The Germans were were particularly incensed by franc-tireurs. These are civilian snipers shooting at German troops. That makes it necessary in their minds to use severe and inexorable reprisals, Uh such as shooting of individuals and burning of homes.
0: Were the Belgians using human shields? So they had to kill the civilians? Uh, actually, the civilians are
1: shooting at us, so we have to <laughs> go and find other civilians and punish them. Yeah, it's it's, it's that. And these uh, terms that I'm using here are quotations from German documents, from German generals, from German orders, right? Hostages were taken and then shot. 150 in the small town of Ehrschacht six hundred and sixty four in dinan general von bulow had 211 people shot at Andenne, and at Tamin, 400 were executed in the main square so you,
0: <laughs> dave i have to ask where's uh where's your friend clark on this stuff where does he uh Oh,
1: he stops before the war starts.
0: <laughs> Smart guy. <laughs> yeah, this... Uh, this this would be tough. This would be tough for Clark to... Uh, to sell? To sell, yeah. They made yeah. us do it. England made us do
1: this, too. No, no, no. This is where this one is different. Uh, let me get a little further here. General von Hausen, the perfidious conduct of Belgians called for reprisals of the utmost rigor Without an instant's hesitation. No, they this is not they made us do it because this was not a spontaneous reaction by individual commanders. It was official policy decided even before the war had started. Oh. They had a they had a German word for it Schrecklichkeit frightfulness. This This plan of reprisals was deliberate. The Germans knew that they could not afford to detach strong forces to guard their lines of communication. So the civilian population had to be thoroughly cowed, thoroughly intimidated. Proclamations were printed in advance, detailing the offenses and the punishments. So here's a quotation. For all acts of hostility, the following principles will be applied. All punishments will be executed without mercy. The whole community will be regarded as responsible. Hostages will be taken in large numbers. So, you, yeah, they're taking collective responsibility. If a civilian shoots at us, we are going to go and execute hostages.
0: They, uh, is there any... I you know, international law is a joke, but is there international law about this at this time or was it after? Is it the Geneva no, Conventions the, or after World War? The Hague Conventions,
1: nineteen oh seven, uh, nineteen oh nine, I think No, they talked about all these things. You you can't do this. You're not allowed to do this. Right? No. <laughs> and uh, and you know what? Never mind the Hague Convention. What about common sense? Right. I mean, if anything, these atrocities are only going to stiffen resistance and and Belgian resolve. General von Kluck complained, the measures taken were slow in remedying the evil. Slow? Well, (laughs) duh. You know, I don't understand. We're shooting hundreds of Belgians and that they keep shooting at us. And, And the worst part of this? As I mentioned, there are journalists in Belgium and there are American journalists in Belgium. They're following the German armies with credentials and they're seeing, you know, sacked houses, uh, blackened villages that have been set on fire and endless files of refugees. German counter-propaganda was really clumsy and it seems to have been directed more at uh a german audience so princess blucher was told that there were 30 officers in a hospital in Aachen, their eyes gouged out by belgian women and children so i mean first of all to to believe something like this is laughable but i also find it's interesting like they only mention the officers how many enlisted men had their eyes gouged out and why are they not at the hospital
0: (laughs) maybe the segregated
1: Sure, the class system, we only count off, well, how many times have we we done, you know, British colonial adventures and the casualties are separate, right? The British lost 17 officers and 240 enlisted men.
0: (laughs) Some of them were even nice guys.
1: Yeah. So there's an episode, I think Tuckman covers it pretty thoroughly, the the sack of Louvain or Leuven. So this is a town in in Belgium, which the Germans occupied uh, on August 19th. There was no resistance. The municipal government, thoroughly intimidated, had already confiscated privately held weapons. So they were afraid of German reprisals, and they took steps to make sure there wouldn't be any. Nonetheless, the Germans took hostages from the municipal administration, the magistrates, and the University of Leuven which was uh, famous. I don't know how old it is, but it's one of the oldest universities.
0: Yeah, that's the the Louvainium. I think uh, think a couple of years before Congo became independent, like Congo became independent in 1960, and I think in like 1958, they allowed three Congolese to study there. (laughs) They were like, look how forward-thinking we are. When was this? (laughs) I don't know, 1957 or something. There there oh was like just, just before the end of colonialism, they, they allowed like a handful of, of Congolese students to go there, I think.
1: Forward thinking.
0: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, a, I, I, the, uh, the name rings a bell. The, the University of Louvain rings a bell for me, and I realized what it, why. Founded in
1: 1425.
0: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's yeah. one of the oldest in the world. Yeah.
1: Well, there's some couple hundred years older, but that, that's. Pretty pretty old for this part of the of Europe, uh, so hostages and the Germans forced the inhabitants of the town to keep their front doors open and their windows lit through the night huh. so m- martial law with some weird rules surveillance so they can see inside yeah on the twenty fifth of August, although they had encountered no resistance from the population. German soldiers panicked. I guess there was a rumor that, you know, the Belgians were counterattacking or that the British were there or basically the Germans panicked. And in the dark, some of the Germans fired on other German troops.
0: A friendly fire incident starts it all off. Yep.
1: And that led to civilians being shot or bayoneted, homes being set on fire. And some of the bodies recovered afterwards showed signs of torture. Many of the civilians killed were randomly dumped in ditches and construction trenches. Around 11.30 p.m., soldiers broke into the university's library located in the 14th century Cloth Hall, so a medieval uh, m- clearinghouse Merchants, uh, I guess the cloth hall is not only where they stored it, but where they did business. I think they did business there, though, too. But now the cloth uh, hall held significant special collections of medieval manuscripts and books. And the Germans went in there and set it on fire. Within 10 (laughs) hours, the library and its collection was virtually destroyed. Some 230,000 books were lost including 750 medieval manuscripts. (laughs) Wow. The sack continued through the next night and day. Uh, Many German officers and soldiers engaged in mass plunder of money, wine, silver, other objects of value, and they killed civilians who resisted or or didn't understand. Some uh, 1,100 buildings in the town were destroyed roughly one-sixth of of the town. The town hall was saved because it was the site of the German headquarters. Uh, 248 civilians killed. Most of the city's 42,000 residents uh, turfed out into the countryside, uh, some being taken from their homes at gunpoint.
0: I have uh, in the book The Kaiser's Holocaust, Germany's Forgotten Genocide and the Colonial Roots of Nazism by David Olusoga and... A co-author. He's. They're saying 6,000. Um, Casualties? In yeah. In 1914, during their advance through Belgium, the German army had reacted to supposed attacks by snipers and resistance fighters with a ferocity that had genuinely shocked Europe. The town of Louvain had been razed to the ground and over 6,000 Belgian civilians had been murdered in a series of orchestrated mass executions and random killings, ignoring the distinction between combatants and civilians that the Europeans imagined was the hallmark of civilized warfare. At the time, the Kölnische Zeitung, that's a Cologne paper, had falsely claimed that Belgian civilians had tortured wounded German soldiers and mutilated the bodies of their fallen comrades. The Kölnische Zeitung had exhaustively reported the Herero and Nama wars a decade earlier and considered the Belgian atrocities akin to those perpetrated by the N-words in West Africa. So this is, let me see uh, if I can find the footnote. It's footnote 6. Uh, see if I can find it uh it may be an end note anyway I'll, I'll keep looking but so yeah okay the so estimates you, range from I guess the hundreds to the thousands okay so the saying that the town was raised is
1: perhaps an exaggeration but a significant part of it was destroyed and yeah I don't I don't know what to say about the, the different statistics on how many were killed but I do have a note here that a, approximately 1,500 citizens of the town, including women and children, uh, were deported to Germany Oh. Wow. Uh, on on trains. Them? They used cattle cars to deport them to Germany at hostages. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're crazy. They lost it. Well, OK, so they had lost it in advance when they adopted this policy of, you know, brutal reprisal. Yeah. And then, of course, they got carried away and, yeah. So the atrocities in Belgium and the cultural destruction, this yeah. seems to have excited people just as much, uh, caused worldwide outrage. Yeah. And it really hurt Germany's standing in the neutral countries. Uh, British Prime Minister Asquith wrote that the burning of Louvain is the worst thing the Germans have yet done. It reminds one of the Thirty Years' War the daily mail called it the holocaust of louvain wow. and it was uh, on the part of the germans i think this was a priceless gift to the british because they turned it into a massive propaganda campaign and the the stories of course got exaggerated just like the german version where these you know these guys are having their eyes poked out by belgian children Uh, You got stories of uh, priests being crucified, nuns raped, uh, babies tossed in the air and caught on bayonets. Uh, Even though these stories are exaggerated, it really helped the British recruit (laughs) a volunteer army, and it really hurt Germany's image in the United States. And here's something about World War One that's going to be a little different. Civilians are going to be increasingly caught up in the war. Uh, it, it's just so big, and the armies are everywhere. You're well, going to have refugees on a scale
0: not seen before. It's interesting because I guess... As the war nerd, who's got a very popular podcast, it's Mark Ames and uh, Gary Brecher, or A.K.A. John Dolan. Uh, you, we read their newsletter, right, Dave? Yeah, <laughs> it's very it. good. Um, so he has this whole thing where he talks about like there's more civilian casualties the more maneuver warfare there is, and less when it's more static but i guess especially in this period it's uh maneuver so more yeah. no you're you're entirely
1: right this yeah. is the war of movement and it shows how how many civilians are going to be displaced uh if not killed or or injured certainly forced to become refugees but i find there's a more troubling uh aspect here it's civilians as targets yeah
0: yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean remember I think Trotsky's or I don't know if it was Trotsky who said it, but they it was someone else who was talking about how the ba- the second round of the Balkan Wars were kind of scary for that. And uh Oh gosh. But was, yeah, and that's and that's deliberate. So. But this is deliberate too. Yeah.
1: You you can't argue that oh it just happened. Yeah. So the the Belgian army in Antwerp is going to tie down two German corps. So that's a significant contribution. Basically, the vast majority of Belgium is overrun by the Germans, and yet they're still fighting. So poor little Belgium is going to become brave little Belgium in the eyes of the world for continuing to fight against, you know, overwhelming odds. Meanwhile, the Allies, the British and French, are responding to the situation by advancing into Belgium. So there are two uh, forces on the western end of their line that have not been in action yet. This is General Larisac's 5th French Army and the British Expeditionary Force commanded by Sir John French. So just to add to the confusion, the British general's name is French. General... General French did not speak French. Oh, Larrazac didn't speak English. Their first meeting uh, with interpreters didn't go too well. Both men left with a profound mutual distrust. Uh, Larrazac told General Joffre that there could be confusion if the British used the same roads in the event of a retreat. And Joffre was, was shocked. What do you, why are you talking about retreat? <laughs> you haven't been in action yet and before the war laurizac had been uh i quote a veritable lion but now he's thinking of retreating before his army has seen any fighting (laughs) and the british of course they're going to help belgium but they don't have a mobilization plan for landing in antwerp and and what would that serve anyway you would just be be besieged along with the belgian forces so they went ahead and landed in France, and they're now on the Belgian border, moving into Belgium beside General Lanazak's army. Uh, they're going to see action. On August 23rd, General von Bülow's army attacked along the Sambre River with four German corps. And uh, according to someone who was there, it rained shells An Algerian battalion, so the French are already using colonial troops, an Algerian battalion of 1,030 men charged a German battery, bayoneted the gunners, and returned with only two men who hadn't been hit by shell fragments or, or bullets. The Germans attacked again the following day on the River Meuse, supported by 340 guns just the sheer numbers of heavy cannons is frightening lord knows what it would have been like to to experience that they ran into a french force under general franchet despere love his name and i especially love what the british did with it because obviously they're going to have trouble with franchet despere so <laughs> they called they called him desperate Frankie. <laughs>
0: That's insulting. Is that I a, is that it, a new way to treat an ally? I think it's kind of cute. <laughs> it's like they've adopted him. Uh,
1: Franchet d'Esperey drove the Germans back across the river. However, his superior, uh, General Laderzac, was losing his nerve. He's not getting any guidance from above, from Joffre. Uh, he's seeing endless columns of Belgian refugees headed south. His staff are demanding that he counterattack, according to doctrine, uh, and he's resisting. Now, it might have been that he's panicked. It might have been cowardice, but he was probably, no, actually, he was certainly right not to counterattack. Franchet d'Esperé repulsed another German attack, but beside him, General Langler retreated. Do they have these
0: 75 millimeters? Is that what they're using to propel the the attack?
1: Yes, but also rifle fire, machine gun fire, and the the Germans, of course, are helping by, as they attack, they're clumping up into large groups to create nice targets. Uh, What's causing the French casualties are when they counterattack or from German artillery. So Lodzak sees that his position is untenable, and he orders a general retreat. Meanwhile, the British were attacked by von Kluck's First Army at Mons. M-O-N-S. This is a coal mining town, and it's going to become famous in in British military history lore. It's it's their first engagement. General Smith Dorian's corps lost 1,600 men, but inflicted heavy casualties uh, on General von Kluck's troops. They had dug themselves in, and apparently the quality of their marksmanship was such that the Germans got nowhere. Uh, unfortunately, La Rizak beside them has begun retreating and that leaves the British with both flanks exposed. The French are on their right and they're gone and there's nobody on our left. And La Rizak, uh did a nasty thing. He didn't consult with General French. He didn't tell the British that he was retreating until like 11 o'clock at night on the 23rd. So General French had a little panic of his own uh, and wrote to Kitchener that he was considering retreat in another direction, back to the coast, so that we can evacuate by sea.
0: Oh, so much for Elan. I guess well, that's, the, uh, that's the British. The British are more practical.
1: Well, the British are supposed to have that stiff upper lip. <laughs> Gen- General French seems to be quivering here a little bit. His mustache <laughs> is shaking. Uh, General Geoffrey, finally starts to realize that there's no uh, there's really no alternative but to go on the defensive and you know you can wait for your opportunity to counterattack and all this of course is through no fault of his own no. the the plan was solid the problem is with the french commanders uh some had broken down one actually committed suicide and joffre sacked a number of what he called weaklings i guess guys who refused to attack and, and commit suicide with their troops. Um, so he Joffre is finally seeing the threat to his left wing, so he's going to form a sixth army. He's taking divisions from uh, Lorraine, where the front is more static, and he's forming a new army uh, behind the lines. On the 25th of August, General von Moltke made another change as well, fairly significant one. He took men from the Western Front to send to East Prussia, uh, the reason for that we'll cover in our next episode, but he's he's panicking. And so he's withdrawing troops, but he didn't take them from Lorraine. He took them from the right wing. So he's significantly weakening the one area where the Germans are pushing forward. By the 24th of August, both von Kluck and von Bülow, so these are the two German armies pushing on the right They thought that they had won, that only beaten men uh, remained ahead of them and that they were in full retreat. Uh, They were wrong. Uh, General Smith Dorian, this is one of two British Corps commanders. The other is uh, Douglas Haig. We'll we'll have more to say about him later. Uh, Smith Dorian realized that his men were exhausted and that units were still, you know, still coming in. So we've got stragglers and he decided to let some of the men rest and and the rest of the stragglers come in. He's going to stand and fight for a day at a place called Le Cateau. Uh, Smith Dorian had three divisions. Von Kluck had nine, but he could only bring two infantry divisions and three of his cavalry divisions to bear. The rest are still coming up. He did have plenty of guns, though, and that made it difficult for the British. But the Germans did what the Germans had been doing so far. They advanced in bunches. Uh, firing from the hip, which is not conducive to accuracy. And they suffered heavily. Smith Dorian lost 8,000 men and 38 guns. But German losses were so heavy that they came away convinced that the British had 28 machine guns per battalion. (laughs) The the real number was two. It's just that British rifle fire was so accurate that the Germans suffered heavily.
0: Target target rich environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So Joffre finally met with Larisac and General French together. And Larisac and French complained about everything. Uh, They were facing superior numbers. His flanks were in the air. His men were too exhausted to go over to the offensive. And listening to General French... Joffre came to the conclusion that the British expeditionary force was coming apart. Truth was that General French was just overly gloomy, like beyond (laughs) pessimism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And on the other side, General von Kluck was overly optimistic. He thought he could cut off the British, but things are beginning to go wrong for the Germans and and their plan. Uh, Moltke has been, besieged by requests from his other commanders that they could launch offensives of their own. The Crown Prince and Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria were tired of just sitting still, so they launched their own attacks uh, from Nancy, from Toul, and Epinal. This is August 24th to 27th, and they were hurled back. The attacks were unnecessary. Even if they'd succeeded, they wouldn't achieve anything critical, and all it did was waste troops. On the 29th, Bulo basically blundered into L'Anrezac. They ran into each other and the Germans suffered heavily. Uh, L'Anrezac counter-attacked. He didn't want to, but Joffre was there in person and ordered him to. Uh, had the British under General French cooperated, they might have had a big victory. Uh, but the British didn't. And it was left to Franchet d'Esperey to save the day again. Uh, The Germans pulled back and Lodzak's army was able to retreat from then on without too much trouble. September 1st, there was a stormy interview between Kitchener and General French. And Kitchener told him to keep the BEF in the line and conform to the movements of his allies. So he gave them a.
0: We're fighting. How deep are we in France now? Are we fighting? We're we're retreating.
1: Yeah, we're retreating every day. Okay. So yes, the Germans are still driving forward, but gaps are starting to appear between Kluck and Bulow. For for one thing, Kluck is trying to get around the British flank, so he's moving further west. Uh second, they're desperately missing the troops that Moltke has sent east. And third, They've got quite a few troops tied up around Antwerp, you know, uh, <laughs> hemming in the Belgian army. So as they advance, the distances are getting greater and gaps are starting to open. Uh, at at one point, von Kluck lost contact with the British. They were retreating too fast. But when he found some troops to attack, they turned out to be f- Frenchmen. They were Laodicea's troops. He's so he's everywhere. in the, he's in the wrong place. <laughs> So Moltke now changes the Schlieffen plan again. He decides to have von Bülow drive the French 5th Army, this is Laudazac, southeast, away from Paris. And Kluck is ordered to cover this movement by staying behind Bülow. Stay in contact, but stay behind him. Now Kluck's on the spot. He knows he's in a better position to attack the French 5th Army, so he went ahead and crossed the river Marne he left one corps behind as a flank guard How far into France are they well that night the french government left paris Oh there was uh, apparently a lot of smoke from burning papers and the the french government left for bordeaux <laughs> they they were going pretty pretty darn far Uh they left behind uh general gallieni in command of the capital and we've oh, met I Gallieni.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he <served laughs> He's the at- really aggressive one that wanted to take Morocco because they had Algeria, I think. It was that was one of his things, right? Uh him and Leote, yeah. Yeah, 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 Lioté. Yeah. But Gallieni's
1: more famous for uh, Madagascar. Mhm. So oh, he yeah, ser- the queen, the mad queen. Yeah. of yeah. Malona. Yeah. So he served in Senegal in Reunion and Martinique, in Indochina. Yeah. Uh, and madagascar he was governor there and he's the one who exiled queen rana valona Galieni was senior to joffre but declined the post of chief of staff because he was only two and a half years from retirement
0: this is a very ger- geriatrically commanded war maybe they all are like that but this is <coughs> all these guys are so old eh? yep they certainly are they well they operate on seniority yeah, yeah.
1: and aristocratic connections uh an aircraft pilot, French, reported that the Germans were moving southeast. So here's a new feature of this war. You have uh basically private aircraft owners <laughs> flying their plane. It's gonna take a little while for the armies to get like their own air forces. So this is just a French guy with a, a plane who's flying overhead and he can see where the Germans are. So he reports that the Germans are uh, moving southeast. And that's going to change everything. General Man- Manouri, commanding the 6th Army, doesn't believe it. But that evening, the report was confirmed. And Galliani decided we must strike. He asked Joffre for permission. And when Joffre saw on a map the position of Kluck's army, he said, a remarkable situation so what he had to do was stop the retreat he's got to get the fifth army to stand firm and then he's got to have the british join with his sixth army the one he collected to attack von kluck on the flank so he's done one positive thing he dismissed la Rezac and replaced him with uh franchet desperate desperate frankie <laughs> now he has to Now he has to make sure of the British general, General French. So he went in person, made a dramatic speech to Sir John, and apparently struck the table with his fist. I think Tuckman describes it that way. Monsieur le Maréchal, the honor of England is at stake.
0: (laughs) The French have been yelling at England about their honor for this whole war, because uh, Tuckman also describes some incident where they were... They kept going to England and asking them if they were going to join. And then some reporter or somebody said, what are you, you know, what are you thinking? And and one of these French officers or politicians said, I'm wondering whether the word honor has to be removed from the English dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Good yeah. one. So
1: French has to basically say, I'll, I'll do what's possible, which sounds like a cop out to me, but. Uh, on the other side, uh, Moltke, the, the German commander-in-chief, he's panicking. In fact, he was well on his way to a complete nervous breakdown. But he's wondering, where are all the prisoners? Where are all the captured guns? If we're winning, we should have you know, tens of thousands of prisoners and hundreds of captured guns. Now he finally receives a report on the presence of the French Sixth Army, which up till then they they didn't know where it was or that it even existed. So he orders uh, Kluck and Bulao to turn and face Paris. There's a little uh, episode I have to include here because it involves uh, (laughs) your General Foch. So meanwhile, the French armies in Lorraine have repelled the German attacks. But General Foch's 9th Army was under severe pressure. And on the 8th of September, he sent a famous telegram to Joffre. He wrote, uh, Mon centre cede, ma droite recule, situation excellente, j'attaque. In English, my center is giving way, my right is retreating. The situation is excellent, I am attacking. So he's gained a lot of uh, props, a lot of prestige for his stubborn, <laughs> stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I found another Foch quote that I found interesting. This is the same guy said that airplanes were interesting toys but had no military value.
0: Hmm. They uh, just the the intel from an airplane just saved your whole. Yeah. Saved the
1: whole campaign. This is going to lead to the Battle of the Marne, the Marne River, uh sometimes also called the Miracle on the Marne. It's actually a series of of separate and, and slightly disjointed battles. Uh the French Sixth Army moving into position ran into Klux Reserve. Um there was some drama, some added drama that would make it, you know, great for uh I don't know a movie or whatever general galliani mobilized the taxi cabs of paris and had them drive soldiers to the front so you have this string of you know little cars with three passengers and a driver you know driving by 10 kilometers whatever and dropping them off and going back for more (laughs) not not sure you know how significant it was but it was i guess pretty cool uh, General Cluck had received his orders from Moltke and had resigned himself to withdrawal, but he moved slowly. Uh, and the French Fifth Army and the British, they had been retreating. Now they get the order to turn and attack. They moved cautiously. They were afraid of, you know, running into the same situation again and, and getting badly handled. Yeah. So... With the gap that was open, Kluck now got the idea that he could attack 6th Army from the north, drive it back on Paris, and capture the capital. Imagine the fame that would be attached to his name if he could capture Paris. Right. Another, so, quick, another 1870, right? Yeah. So now he moves quickly, but in so doing, he opened up a 20-mile gap between himself and Bulow. Uh, all that lies between the German 1st and 2nd Armies was a screen of infantry and some cavalry.
0: Meaning, and, like, Bulo's behind him, right? Not beside him. Well, he was supposed to be
1: behind Bulo, but now, oh, he's, okay. now he's moving towards Paris and opening a gap there. I see. And by sheer luck, the British Expeditionary Force marched straight into that gap. <laughs> slowly marched. Into that gap. They had been retreating at a pace of thirty miles a day. Now they advanced only eight miles a day.
0: But so they're in the gap, which is great, but aren't they then, don't they then have one army on either side of them?
1: Which they can turn and attack in the flank or the rear. Right. Be- because there are French armies in front of both of those German forces. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. On the ninth of September, a German Uh, aircraft pilot warned Bulow that there were five British columns crossing the Marne and Bulow realized "I, I have no choice I have to retreat and then he warned Cluck who also realized he had to retreat so at that point the Schlieffen plan is dead
0: that's real this is real maneuver warfare they didn't even have to have contact to change the enemy's plan
1: yeah yeah
0: to do was be there.
1: So the Germans retreated. The French and British pursued slowly. The Germans lost 40 guns and maybe 14,000 prisoners. They just had to leave them behind to, to move fast. Or? Or, or those guys just didn't move fast enough and got yeah. overrun. Uh, finally, a German corps which had been besieging uh, Mauberge arrived in the nick of time and, and was able to fill the gap. So the Schlieffen plan failed. Moltke had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and he was uh, quietly and secretly replaced by General Erich von Falkenhayn. Falkenhayn was the minister of war. And here's your age thing. At 53, he's, he's just a boy compared to most of the German army commanders.
0: Was he in the youth uh, <laughs> The youth committee? <laughs> he's... Uh, uh,
1: As minister of war, he's got like a a part politician in his resume, but he's a very fascinating guy. We're going to hear more about him later. So he sees now that there is an opening for movement. It's on the French northern flank. Antwerp finally fell. The Belgian army has retreated to the very, very southwest corner of Belgium. I don't know how much of Belgium they're occupying, like 5% less. <clears throat> they're just barely still on Belgian soil. But that freed up a couple of reserve corps that had been besieging Antwerp, and he can now use these troops. And he thought that he could get around the British on the extreme end of the line. Just go all the way to the corner, get around Right, them. right. And he found a place he thought he could break to at Ypres, Y-P-R-E-S, very famous name on the Western Front. Uh, Now, his reserve corps, remember, these are not the best trained troops. In some cases, the men are too young and the officers are too old, but these are the troops at hand. Now, the British had had been shifting a little bit uh, northwest into Flanders. It's closer to their supply lines, which are different from the French. They've also sent over another division from uh, Britain. Seventh Division have landed. So the Germans attacked at Ypres, and this battle lasted from October 12th to November 11th. The Germans did break through at a place called Gellewelt, but a British counterattack threw them back. And in these battles around Ypres, the British lost 50,000 men. And the Germans, some estimate, lost twice as many. Uh, A.J.P. Taylor notes a pattern that's going to be repeated over and over again in, in World War I. The defenders are able to bring in new men by rail faster than the attackers can move on foot. So you get a breakthrough, you start to push forward, and within a day or two, there are fresh troops there to resist you, because they came in by train. The casualties were crazy. Um, Mm -hmm. There were 84 battalions in the British Expeditionary Force. By the end of Ypres, none of them had more than half of their men remaining. Wow. The the 1st Battalion, the Queen's Royal West Surrey's, were down to two officers, two corporals, and 27 men out of a complement of a 1,000. And most of these guys that were left were from the transport and cooking details. They just picked up rifles and got into the line. Are they reconsidering Kitchener's uh, prediction now? <sighs> They're going to have to uh, because although they fought you know pretty well at places like Mons and Le Cateau and and at Ypres this is the graveyard of of the British professional army their their best troops you know they've basically lost half of them more than half and here's a a stretch of the western front conflict that got the name the race to the sea both the Germans and the Uh, British and French are going to try to leapfrog each other uh, by moving north and, and west to be first to reach the English Channel. Well, that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to outflank each other. And then they're going to end up running out of land to outflank each other when they reach the English Channel. So by the end of 1914, the front lines run from Switzerland to the English Channel. (laughs) take a look at a map if you want to see what that means it's an enormous uh territory and also the line does not follow the french border because they've lost a huge huge chunk of northern france
0: and this is uh this is probably unprecedented in europe a a front line this long
1: maybe oh yeah because the armies are simply you know 10 times bigger than
0: anything we've ever seen
1: yeah yeah Before this, the the largest battle was probably Leipzig in 1813 when, you know, 500,000 allies confronted Napoleon, who had about 350,000 troops. So that was so large as to be impossible to control. Now you have a couple of million men, you know, locked locked in. Uh, There are plenty of generals who think that the war of movement would simply resume in the spring. And and they were wrong, because from now on the front line wasn't going to move more than ten miles either way, for the next three years.
0: So whose I, idea was it to to start digging, to start the, digging now? The soldiers. Ah, interesting. <laughs> no, no, they they weren't stupid.
1: Uh, standing yeah. in the open when artillery shells is raining down is a bad idea. Now they they do have entrenching tools, and. Yeah. Both sides are going to start planning for more extensive trenches than than the ditches the guys dug at first. Right. But effectively, by the end of 1914, both armies are digging in, and and they're going to stay where they are. So the impact of this, uh, you know, first part of the war, well, the Schlieffen Plan failed. You can argue that von Moltke ruined it, but it it was a pretty, it would have had to be a really near-run thing for it to have succeeded. Yeah. And that means that Germany is now condemned to the one thing they were trying to avoid, a two-front war. And and it's going to get worse for them than that. Yeah. Uh, however, they do control about 10% of France. And unfortunately for France, that territory uh, contains much of her coal and iron. And that's under German control, and the same goes for you know all almost all of Belgium. The French army had suffered, I would say, catastrophic casualties. Yeah. Uh, in the month of August alone, they lost 300,000 men. One month. Joffre, uh, as we've seen, is no great general, but he came out of this with his reputation enhanced. Don't don't ask me why, but he he's now the generalissimo, and the PEF as I mentioned is basically gone. Uh, volunteers are going to arrive to replace the losses, but they haven't been trained to the same level and they are not the same quality of marksmen.
0: So this is so interesting because when you think of World War One, you think of these long trenches and nothing much happening for years and years, but it started with such an incredibly maneuver based ca- high casualty dynamic campaign. Well the ca- the high casualties
1: aren't going to change but, but yeah the mm. the the, mo- the war of movement is effectively over in the west. Yeah. Yeah. In the west we'll see it's different in the in the east. I just have a couple of notes about the the first months of of the war uh there were French soldiers from Cameroon, and I mentioned Algerians, already in France by September of 1914. And by the end of the year, uh, Indian troops are going to arrive to reinforce the British. So, uh, even though they haven't organized a large army of their own, they're certainly ready to fight to the last Indian. India, for sure. And they've got lots of them. And there was a uh, an episode on... Uh, christmas day 1914 Um, that makes me think to you know that possibility that the socialists could have prevented the war on on christmas day it's not a legend but troops on both sides actually climbed out of their troops and mingled in the area between the trenches which was already being called no man's land they traded cigarettes uh, they exchanged small gifts uh, apparently, some football soccer matches broke out. Uh, I read in two sources that the Saxons beat the British three to two uh they <laughs> They sang songs they sang Christmas carols, and they weren't carrying their weapons yeah. and all of this happened to the horror of the commanding generals right. you know we
0: we can't have this fraternization fraternization that's that's lenin's that was Lenin's watchword. He was just like socialists have to encourage fraternization,
1: yeah, yeah, so the next year, in December of nineteen fifteen uh allied commanders gave orders to prevent any repeat of the previous christmas troops uh truce, sorry uh units were encouraged to mount raids to harass the opposing lines. Uh, communicating with the enemy was discouraged uh, by the simple expedient of artillery barrages along the front line throughout the day. So, Merry Christmas, here are your shells. (laughs) Don't
0: Uh, try to make friends
1: anymore. Yeah. Even with that, there were a small number of, of brief truces that occurred despite the prohibition. Uh, The Germans reacted the same way. There was a general order from the 29th of December 1914 uh, forbidding fraternization with the enemy, warning German troops that every approach to the enemy will be punished as treason. So the war is not going to be a friendly sporting match anymore.
0: No. Well, I mean, yeah, well. All right, so we'll stop there. We'll go to the east now, yeah.